very intentional. Jesus Christ presented three unique images of himself, symbols of himself that he wanted to be closely associated with. Jesus wanted himself to be associated with this symbol of a colt, riding a colt, the child of a donkey, the symbol of cleansing a temple. That is, flipping over the tables of the money changers and those who bought and sold in the temple complex. And the final symbol that Jesus uh, demonstrates is this cursing of a fig tree. A cult, a cleansing, a cursing. These three things are what began Jesus' final week. He knows he's going into Jerusalem to die. And he does three particular symbols to signal to everyone around him Because remember, most of Jesus' life and ministry has been in Galilee, in the north of the city. No one in Jerusalem really knows him that well. And so, if you want to make a good impression, he essentially is doing that. He's coming into the city to irritate everybody and eventually get himself killed. And he knows that's what he's doing. See, there's something about action speaking louder than words. We just had that here. Like, you saw a baptism. And I could say, you know, all your sins are cleansed. But then I could also pour water on you, you see. We could say that you have passed through the Red Sea. You will not drown. Your life will land in happy places. You will enter the promised land. But then I also could demonstrate that by pouring water all over the thing and having this symbol washed down your back that there is an action here a symbolic reality that is attended to the promises of a God who made all reality. Therefore, it's remarkable. Or even further after this, Jesus will go on to say that actions obviously speak louder than words. He speaks about a father who has two sons. And he tells his one son to go into the vineyard and work. And the first son says, no, I will not. Then he changes his mind and he goes. And the second son said, of course I will. But he changed his mind as not. And so Jesus' simple parable was nothing more than to say, actions are better. Actions speak louder than words. And you need to see this morning, the hope this morning that I have for us is that you will see in Christ that he will not just talk to you. He will not just give you a word. He will not just give you a sermon. He works for you. He acts for you. He saves you. And the beginning of this week for him is nothing more than action after action culminating to giving his own life on the cross. That when he says he loves you, then he actually does love you. It's an amazing gospel. For I could tell you this, that the greatest in the kingdom is like a child. But Jesus can show you by walking into Jerusalem on a colt, a timid, weak child of a donkey. See, I could tell you that Jesus longs for you. This is beautiful. He longs for you to draw close to him in prayer. But Jesus can show you that by flipping over all the tables and being absolutely furious for any type of barrier that could come between you and him. See, I could tell you that he hates anything that takes your heart away from him. 
But you see, this morning Jesus is showing you that when he curses that fig tree, anything that gets between you and him must die. So let us see, for the time we have, these three symbols of Christ's love for you. For they might be three, but they all have one point. Jesus Christ is jealous and desires to have close, intimate communion with you. Closer than it is now, ever increasing more into heaven. My prayer, oftentimes I've prayed in my life, is I've prayed almost to the point where Jesus says, don't pray repetitions. And I pray this sometimes repetitiously. I have to really think about what I mean when I pray. Is I pray, Lord, could you please let me come as close to you as I can be in this age? And I like that prayer. Lately, one of my other prayers is, Lord, please bend my will to be your will. I love praying that because then I don't have to worry about anything. That I, I, don't, I don't want anything to happen that isn't God's will. So I just would rather, I don't even want to pray for God to do something for me. I just want to be happy about what he's doing. And that's, I love that prayer. That's one of my favorites lately. But the other is, Lord, please let me come close to you as I can. I don't know what it was like. I don't know why you took Enoch. I don't know why he walked so closely with you that you took him. But boy, I wish that was me. Because I really do hate this world. And I think we all do. I hate this world. I hate this world. Especially when you can taste a little bit of the age to come. Why would you ever want to stay? Unless there's work to do. And there is. But... Here is the symbol that Jesus Christ gives us. He deliberately chose to ride a donkey. He rode a colt. We're told that the donkey was brought to him and a colt, and they put their cloaks on this donkey. But it's two animals. It's a mother and her child. Luke particularly tells us in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus sat on this colt, not the mother. He sat on the littlest one. He sat on the little colt. We're told that never had a person ride it before. It wasn't broken in. See, the mother had to be there amidst the crowd as it's a Passover, and the city is flooding from around 30,000 to some historians estimate 180 to maybe 500,000 people in Jerusalem at this time. There is a flood, a crowd making a pilgrimage up to Jerusalem, and Jesus is riding a tiny little animal that's never even been in the context of this before, let alone having someone riding on it before, and constantly need of its mother for security and confirmation and confidence. That's how Jesus chose to present himself to you. Isn't that glorious? Like, when you think about it, the image of it is more profound. It, let it sear upon your conscience. He is kind. He is gentle. Your Savior is meek and mild. You have to remember that. You might not remember the things I say in this sermon five years from now or seven days. But the power of an image is that you may never forget that tiny little colt that he rode. So that when you are beset, when you are weak, you must remember he wants you to come to him. He is approachable. 
He rides an animal that is low and slow. He has shown us kindness that his actions do speak louder than words. That when Jesus simply says, I'm meek and lowly, or he simply says, I will save you by my grace, he also shows it by actually associating with the meek and lowly, not the pomp and the proud. He rolls in like a king on a tiny little child of a donkey. There's no way he could take over the city with this kind of arsenal or military. But he is not here to coerce. We are saved by conviction, not coercion. We're saved by faith. He is not coming in to tell people that he is Lord. He glides in to save them, get inside of their hearts and souls, and convince them that he is Lord. He is gentle. He takes a beast of burden, that he would bear all of our burdens. He is a true leader, a true savior. Someone who actually leads by sacrifice. By making less of himself to build us up. If he can associate with these type of images to particularly be associated with such a weak and worthless animal. The question, the implication is, will he not deal tenderly with you? That is... This is his triumphal entry. He is entering into Jerusalem to declare himself as king. Therefore, his triumphal entry is inaugurated with its glorious reign, borne by the wobbly legs of a tiny little child in need of its mother. Do you see how this image is intentional for you? Can he not deal with you tenderly if you call upon him? If you are weak, The besettingness of sin. That I try to deal with pastorally. If it were not for this image, there would be no hope. When someone comes to me and says, I cannot get my marriage sorted out. When someone comes and says, I cannot stop looking at pornography. You can. Because he will not put you away. If you are burdened, he rode a beast of burden because he came to bear those burdens. He is more kind than you think. He's more kind than you. He is more long-suffering than anyone you've ever met. That he associates this image so that you would know as with all these images, that all Jesus wants is close communion with you. That you would come as close to him as you could possibly be imagined in this age. He can deal with our sin. I can tell you Jesus will forgive you. I can tell you Jesus is merciful. But he has to show you that he is encircled upon the praises of humble children he is riding a humble colt, and he is covered with humble cloaks. That is his triumphal entry into the world. And until he shows you that, there's not much more that can be said. But the second image that Jesus brings, 
which shows that he's not just concerned with meekness. That his meekness, his humbleness, should never be confused with weakness. That he is very powerful and strong to save. He is angry and jealous for you. That's the other thing. The, the heart, the apathetic heart is such a problem. There are so many things in this life. There are so many things that pull us away from Christ. But you see, Jesus will have none of it. That he's actually furious and angry and more passionate. He's passionate enough for both of you. That he will find you. He will take you and bring, him, bring you to himself. See this cleansing he does. So as he entered Jerusalem, he approached the temple. And from the temple, he drove out everybody who was buying and selling. All the tables around the temple in which coins were being exchanged so that animals could be bought and then later sacrificed. He overturned all these tables of the money changers and those who sat in seats to sell pigeons were told. See, the travelers from all across the country are coming into the city of Jerusalem for Passover. And instead of hauling all of their animals, whether it be uh, goats or cattle and they bring their coins and they exchange the coins because even little cities had their own type of coin there was no universal currency of course in that ancient world so everybody came with all different types of coins but they would have to exchange the coins to a temple coin and with that temple coin they would go to the broker to buy some animals so therefore they didn't have to bring the animals across that whole pilgrimage with them and this is normal. It doesn't seem like anything Jesus is particularly concerned of. What Jesus hates is the location. What he is angry about is that it was occurring inside the house of God. Now, not particularly the temple. You see, the temple was a beautiful, high, but relatively small building on top of a massive mount, a flat surface, a huge courtyard. See, Jesus couldn't really go into the temple. Only priests could go into the temple. That's actually what was called in the temple the court of the priests. And outside of that was the court of Israel and the court of the women. And outside of that was a long baluster, which said on it that any Gentile could not go past that point upon pain of death. But outside of that baluster, which was the court of the priests and the court of Israel and the court of the women, there was what was called the court of the Gentiles. And that's where Jesus would be here. And it's hard to explain the perspective. But this court of the Gentiles was 33 acres in size. Put that in perspective. A football field is almost one and a half acres. A football field is almost one and a half acres. The court around the temple was 33 acres in size. All stone, built by Herod, with colonnades, Solomon's colonnade, porches all around the periphery. It was a public place for people to gather, to teach, to congregate. All to say... What Jesus does here, when he tips over this table, it's a symbolic action, right? It's a very good chance the majority of everybody in that temple complex didn't even know he did it. 
a few tables in one corner of a 33-acre auditorium or stadium. See, he's flipping over the tables because that 33-acre massive temple complex, in his mind, was intended for prayer. For prayer. The whole thing. You can imagine the people. There was a decision made as people study the history that the priesthood who was over the temple made a decision along the time. You can imagine the boardroom meeting where they were like, hey, it's pretty big, 33 acres. We could use some of that so that we can exchange rates for coins and animal sacrifice. And you can see all the, the board of the Levi saying, yeah, that seems to make sense. 33 acres is huge. People can still pray and also do a little of this money exchanging on the side. 33 acres is huge. And Jesus wrote up and said, absolutely not. This is the court for the Gentiles, for the world. 33 acres is nothing. This whole thing should be perfectly silenced with devotion and prayer as people are approaching the one true God. And so his anger is what? Nothing more to be matched with his kindness. For his kindness on the cult is for you to draw near. And his anger at the temple is for you to draw near. Because he is motivated by love. Whether it be gentle love or angry love. It is a jealousy for your soul. God wants you. He wants to commune with you. James says that he is jealous for the spirit that he has made within you. To be with you. And so therefore... As Zechariah 2, 4 prophesied, there would be a day in which Jerusalem would be a city without walls because of the multitude of people that will flock to Yahweh as the glory of God will be in his temple. And so Jesus, having the heart of God, being God, the very prophet himself, says this whole thing is wrong. There shouldn't even be any walls in this city. Everyone should be coming up to Jerusalem to find salvation in the one true God. That is, 33 acres is not even a mega church for Jesus. He wants it all. His jealousy for communion with the people that he has made. He cleanses it from all distractions. So I don't know particularly where you're coming from or where you're going. Or how busy your life is. But there is a danger to busyness. A real danger to things that just make sense. Like making money tables. Change, doing a little business on the side. Oh yes, I'm very busy today. I'm very busy today. I can't pray. God forbid I have time to fall on my knees and approach my Lord. There is a danger to busyness. Jesus' concern is not like ours. You are not made for more money. You were not made for more work. You were made for Him. You were made to have Him, to know Him. See, when I wake up in the morning, I have a bunch of thoughts on my mind. And I am tempted, I am tempted like every man with flesh, to think I need to get to work. I have a lot of things to do. You need to remember this symbol of Jesus' anger, of flipping over every table in your mind. Let it all go to hell. 
Let it all go to hell. But do not get out of bed. Do not start your day until you have fallen on your face before your Lord and been with the master of your salvation. You have nothing more important you could ever accomplish that day from that point on. There's a centering that Jesus is here to do. See, his love is matched with this jealousy. It's for you. You see this symbol is for you? Jesus is a real man. He's really angry. He really loves, therefore he really hates. He's really kind, therefore he's really angry. He's not a feminist. He's not a pacifist. He's a real man with sanctified adrenal glands and epinephrine, norepinephrine, adrenaline running through his veins. Mark or Luke says that he took up a whip and started whipping people in the temple because they were breaking prayer with God. See, there's a certain anger that comes from his love. It's a self-controlled love of a perfectly righteous man who has nothing more. He, what motivates Jesus' anger? Is he angry for his own money, his own position, his own title? No. He's angry for love. He's angry for you. He's angry for prayer, for communion with him. It's the image of a perfectly righteous man actually being angry over the perfectly righteous reason. And how much more do we say in our lives where we say, oh, I can't believe so-and-so did this to me or so-and-so said this to me. But how furious would we be if we missed a morning prayer? I've never been in a church fight of disagreement over the prayer meetings here. Not once. Like, we meet here on, on Saturday night for communion night before Sunday morning communion to pray. I've never had a mediated dispute in the church over that. On Thursdays, we, we meet to pray. We haven't gotten one fight yet. Can you believe it? But we'll get in fights over everything else. And the only thing Jesus wants to fight about is prayer. It's completely opposite to our hearts, you see. That this is it. Everything else doesn't really matter. Prayer being essential. We may stop eating. You may stop drinking. And someday you may stop breathing. But you will never stop praying. I love what Richard Sibb says. In entertaining the Holy Spirit, an old Puritan from years ago had a whole book dedicated, How Can I Entertain the Spirit of God in My Life? All I want is Him. I want to know this more than how to manage the stock market or how to manage my job or how to manage my car or how to manage my finances. I want to entertain the Spirit. I want Him. He wrote, We commonly grieve the Spirit of God when the mind is troubled with a multitude of busyness. For a multitude of busyness begets a multitude of passions and distractions. And when God's Spirit dictates the best things that tend to our comfort and peace, we have no time to hear. So, how does He cleanse us? How does He flip over all the tables of our soul and our mind that we would be solely devoted to Him? The third and the final symbol which matches with all his other symbols, that in every image that Jesus associates himself, the common theme is only that he wants to be with you, that he wants to commune with you. And so we're told that morning he woke up 
and he was hungry. And he was in the peripheries of the city in Bethany, obviously because it's so overpopulated, there's no place to sleep in the city. And so every day he would walk back out to the eastern slopes. He woke up and he was hungry. And he went to a fig tree that had leaves on it, but he couldn't find any fruit. And he came to it and said, may no fruit ever come from you again. And then immediately the thing dried up and withered at once. And the disciples were astonished. And I bet in some of their minds they were thinking, there it is. That's the power that will take the city back from Rome. But when he goes into the city, he turns to the right to go to the temple. He doesn't go straight to go back to Herod's court, to go back to Pilate's court. Because all he could have to do to take over and make the kingdom of God is simply say to Pilate, may you wither up and die. And apparently there's this power in the word of Jesus Christ that he could take over anyone he wants by coercion. But here, exegetes, theologians have pointed out that the image is what he just did to the temple. That this taking over of a fruitless tree, a fruitless fig tree, is because he is cursing a fruitless temple, a temple that doesn't have prayer. Because right after Jesus' ministry here, in only 40 short years, the temple will be gone. The city will be destroyed. And there will be no priesthood. There will be no temple. And this is the love of Christ. That he will curse anything that gets in your way between you and him. He'll curse it all. You see... If you could not handle a million dollars, you will be poor in this life. If you could not handle cancer, you will not have cancer. Whatever temptation, whatever trial comes your way, it must bring you closer to him. Everything that is contrary to your love toward him is cursed. It is not for your stars. It is not for your life. So much so that Jesus here, realizing the temple is useless and pointless and not drawing anyone to the one true God, so much so he curses his own priesthood, he curses his own temple, and as we learn, he curses his own son. That is, he put his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on a cursed tree to shrivel up and die, that his tongue cleaved to his roof of his mouth, that all our sins fell upon him, and he was cursed in our sins, so that there would be nothing, even our own sin, that could be cursed out of the way, so that you will have fellowship and close communion with your God. Everything works for that one purpose of knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Dear Father God, Lord, we ask that you would we ask that you would sear these images on our soul. Lord, that you are kind. You tell us you are kind, Father. But we see you riding that colt. Lord, you tell us you are jealous. But Lord, we see you flipping those tables to remove everything for our good. Lord, we know that you are powerful. 
Lord, we thank you. We have to praise you, Lord, that you cursed your own son for us. Lord, we put all of our sin upon that lamb who was slain. We ask, Lord, that you would curse our sins. Curse it all. Curse anything that would keep us from you. For, Lord, at your right hand are blessings and pleasures forevermore. And we will not, our heart, our restless heart, will not find rest until it finds it in you. In Jesus' name, be good on these prayers and help us to praise you now for everything you are worthy of. Amen.